0: You are listening to The Cycling Podcast. Hello and joining you on the 20th of February. That is four days before those blessed 24 hours when we're given respite from arguably the most tedious social media meme in cycling because It will, in fact, be zero days until Omloop. My name's Daniel Freeber, and I'm the host of this episode of The Cycling Podcast in which we will try not to get irrationally wound up about such minor online annoyances and instead serenely look back on the last seven days in professional cycling with another eye on what's to come. Rob Hatch, Eurosport commentator and very regular guest in these parts. It'll soon be happy Omloop Day. Another pet hate of mine, Rob. I'm feeling very cantankerous. I've been very wound up this week. I don't know what it is. Why am I so cantankerous? You wound up? Never. I'm not having that. That doesn't happen to you. Rob, we're going to... I'll tell you what, we'll welcome our second guest co-host and then we will each talk about, or you two can tell me, if there's any any internet cycling memes that wind you up. Um, So also joining us this week after he successfully avoided the life ban I threatened him with, if you mentioned track cycling last week, it is young still young i think forever young richard abraham good morning daniel is, is that still hanging over me as a constant sort of the t word in the background for the rest of track cycling yes um that is an inviolable is that a word and um, policy on the cycling podcast okay
1: I'm, I'm, I'm just constantly on probation now for forever
0: Yes, um, and cyclocross as well. You're not allowed to mention cyclocross until, mm, I would like to say, well, next January, but probably around November. We'll grudgingly have to bring it up again. Um, Chaps, um, is there any internet memes that bug you irrationally. And this is no this is no slight on people um, who have posted these memes in the past. It's just the, the zero days until Omelette. I see it as slightly disrespectful to the rest of the calendar. That's what it is. It's as though nothing else matters except opening weekend in Belgium. Um, I think also my heckles have been raised this week by the Alpacin de Kernink kit launch um, another thing that else? generally doesn't generally gr- if cycling clothing cycling kits don't generally grind my gears it's not a topic that I'm particularly interested in um, however when Alpersin de Koenig unveiled a kit that was a a rip-off of the Carrera kit from 30 years ago and b identical to their big rivals pseudo quick steps kit um, that wound me up. And I, I don't know, Rob, maybe that was a shot across Suda Quick-Step's bowels because we know they have they already stole a sponsor.
2: And they've, now they've stolen their look. And they've stolen the classic's reputation in the last couple of years as well, winning, winning the big races. But I like the kit, Daniel. I'd wear it. But I completely agree on the second point from a work point of view. It's an absolute nightmare for us commentators. And the
0: Carrera kit, obviously, was inspired by the denim mm that Carrera make and still make in fact you can still buy Carrera jeans in Italian service stations you can still I bought an, a nice Carrera t-shirt retro t-shirt in an Italian service station on the Giro a couple of years ago so there was good reason for that um you know if de Kernick wanted to go down that road they we should have had pictures of its double glazing isn't it or bottles of shampoo Shampoo and
2: double glazing
0: on the the kit Um, so I don't so it's not imaginative it's not it doesn't seem to fit with any particular narrative Uh, so chaps um, Alpacinda kind kit does it well Rob we we know it doesn't annoy you and secondly internet cycling memes please I, I think to chime in on the kit I think back in the in the 90s when
1: cycling had a bit less of a sort of technical like Formula One on two wheels kind of spirit to it like a denim kit went all right like it kind of fitted with the narrative of a bit kind of euro poppy exciting bright fashionably unfashionable but now like the way that everything's the way that cycling is moving and it from a, a technological point of view and the way that it's presenting itself sort of scientific professionalized highly focused does not fit with like denim lycra the the two just clash in a very bad way for me
2: not baggy
0: jeans then is it you, you can come again you can come again i mean another uh, sort of similar kit in a similar vein was the castorama kit with sort of mock overalls castorama of course is like a diy store big matt also had a very similar one um which with sort of mock overalls on the front um cycling memes chaps
2: i still can't get over you have to call them a meme it just doesn't look right it's a meme in it You know, things that people say regularly become a little bit hackneyed and cliched. I, for one, I'm glad I don't do X, as it's called nowadays, anymore. Um, So I get away with most of that. But the one where the bloke's looking back and he's with his girlfriend and he's looking at another woman, that does my head in me. Not for any particular reason, apart from the fact that I saw it 55 million times.
0: Uh, You're such a nice boy, Rob. (laughs) Uh, I'm just looking at this theme of the very sort of visual, descriptive kits in sport generally there've been a few in spanish football there's one i forget which team it is whose kit consists of entirely of sort of um Hamoni Berico pictures of Hamoni Berico that is the whole so it's it's deep red so ha- hams um and there's another one in a spanish third division team called La Hoya um who play in a te- in a kit which is just one big photo of sort of a A broccoli plantation, if that's the correct word. Um, It's just lots of broccoli on the kit. Um, which I think has something to do with the sponsors anyway chaps um, it feels as though we really should shall we talk about some proper cycling now yeah stop talking nonsense and um, let's get on shall we to the news roundup which traditionally starts all of our episodes on the cycling podcast certainly during the season Um, we will go chronologically chaps last week there was one stage to go I believe in the tour of Oman when we recorded it was the decisive stage to the summit of Green Mountain and it was one like the G C by adam yates of uae team emirates uh, won very convincingly and um, pretty easily i would say um, second was Jan Hirt of Sudar quick step and Czechia. rob yes well said and third was yates uae teammate finn fisher black one of the many revelations of the 2024 season to date i would suggest fisher black also won the points competition the youth jersey, Young Riders jersey and UAE won the team's jersey um, Chaps, we will just dwell on this for a moment because I don't think we'll talk much about the Tour of Oman in part 2. Um, Adam Yates's record in stage races it, it bears mentioning and dissecting, analysing just for a moment. Um, he's won 7 stage race GCs in his career 18 top 3s, 30 top 5s, 37 top 10s and this is in 62 stage races in his pro career. So in over half of them, he's finished in the top 10. In almost half of them, he's finished in the top five. I remember a couple of years ago, I called him Craig David um, after the British R&B star famous, uh, among other things. How did that go down? Well, no, I didn't, not to his face, obviously, because Craig David had a famous song called Seven Days. Adam Yates, I thought, was the, the king of short stage races, seven-day racing. One incredible record, chaps. Um, bears out once again that Adam Yates, were he not at UAE Team Emirates, would be a, a viable option, I think, certainly to win a Grand Tour um, in the near future. And Who knows, he may yet win one for UAE Team Emirates. I, I had that question put to me by, by another journalist the other day, actually, about kind of what's
1: Adam Yates doing at UAE and surely he could go and win a grand tour somewhere else and then you're thinking well like what what team would he go to to do that and and would that team be good enough now to win a grand tour I think Adam Yates is good enough to do it from from his stage racing record although we don't it's not really fair to draw too many parallels between them but we know Simon's won a grand tour he won the Vuelta so but then the way that the way that teams now have to set up and operate in order to try and win a Grand Tour where would he go to do that?
0: Well think about the the mess that Ineos got themselves in last year in the summer of last year when they had to pivot and make a U-turn over Carlos Rodriguez and they basically had to well, he, he, they've anointed him really, I suppose you could say Tom Pidcock as well, but they've anointed Rodriguez as the man most likely and the man they're currently in this period going to build their GC hopes around. Is Adam Yates uh, the one that got away? Because, of course, the previous year, he'd done the Tour de France as one of three, three leaders at the Tour de France. But he was sort of the lesser one the least of the three. I remember the time trial in um, Copenhagen where he didn't get the same equipment. It was Thomas and remind me who would have been the other, who would have been the, the the other leader. Was it Danny Martinez? And Yates, as I say, he, he was sort of, um, I'm not going to say the sort of bastard sibling um, of the three, but they didn't get completely behind him. And uh, I don't know. Did, was he the big mistake that they made in terms of their sort of grand tour planning over the last two or three years? Um, it's possible, something to conjure with.
2: I would say so. In fact, I was reading an article, I think it was in Rouleau over the winter, and he was, he was being very diplomatic. You know, he's mannered, well mannered bloke and he, you know, he didn't want to come out swinging and criticise, but there are enough hints in what he said to say that he did leave Ineos and he feels more value, valued where he is now at UAE he did say that there was, there's now less politics involved in in what people want to race for. They're, they're all allowed to say they would like to race for what they, whether they get given that's another thing, but the team takes into account what the riders want to do at UAE, and it seems to have pretty much everybody fairly happy at the minute, doesn't it? I mean, it'd be interesting to see what happens at the Tour this year with all the superstars going, but then again, you know, Tadej Pogacar is so good that if he's on the money... None of them are really going to turn around and argue, and so hang on a minute. I deserve to be the leader instead of him, are they? Um, but I think I yes, think he's never
0: he's never had a go at the Giro, and the Giro is the one that looks on paper to be best suited to him because as the years have have passed, he's become more and more of a pure climber, I would say, or or recognised got the recognition he he deserves as a pure climber, and um, well, that is the climbers' Grand Tour par excellence. Certainly, it was until. Um this year when it's been watered down slightly, maybe maybe um to find favour with Pogacar. Um chaps, should we move on? Um again, proceeding in chronological order. I think last week we were one stage into the Voltao Algarve, Herben Taison having triumphed on day one. The following day, um, Danny Martinez won on the Alto La Folla. Martinez, who I think I said to Rob Hatch in a text that day, can look like Lance Armstrong one day and Louis Armstrong the next, unfortunately. Quite incon- he has been quite inconsistent. Um, he's, when he's good, he's outstanding. And we saw that last week. The following day, Wout van Aert took his first road win of the season to be followed by his countryman, Remco Evenepoel winning the TT ahead of an outstanding Magnus Sheffield and Stefan Kung the following day. This gave Remco a lead of 47 seconds going into the last stage showdown atop the Alto do Maliao, And he duly defended it, though not without Van Aert and Ben Healy giving him and Quick Quickstep a nervous half hour or so. And... Not without Martinez again out sprinting Remco for his second stage win. Chaps, we're going to talk a lot more about that race in part two, I believe. So we'll move on. Um, it's been a tradition for a while now for the Volta Algarve and the Ruta del Sol to run concomitantly at the same time. That was due to be the case this year as well, Rob. But what happened? Well, well go on, Rob. There, you tell us.
2: There's, uh, I think a lot of people... We've been reading the news all over Europe. Now there's a lot of protests going on in the agricultural sector right now. The, we saw it in France in stage racing. It's come to Spain in the last two weeks. There have been big protests on the Spanish mainland in Catalonia mainly, pot to the Basque Country, and then down south in Andalusia. And in Andalusia, there was also um, a very tragic incident, actually, in which a couple of police officers were killed in um, a drugs bust um, on a boat down near Cadiz. This didn't really get in the news, but it, it made... Part of the decision that was then made about the Andalusia, it made a lot of sense because there were basically not enough guardia civiles, not enough police officers to, to keep the route safe, uh, unfortunately. And, and it meant that aside from a five kilometre time trial, we had no racing in Andalusia. It was a, a real disappointment for the organisers and the organiser was visibly upset when he was given the announcement. And, you know, they're one of the few independent organisers left on and I really fe- I really felt for them.
0: Yeah, the organiser, Joaquin Cuevas, um, they, they've already had to sort of save the race once. Uh, about 10 years ago, the race was in a, a pretty bad way as a lot of small small stage races in Spain. And they tried various things, crowdfunding. They really sh- they really shook up the route. If you go back and look at results from the Ruta del Sol from 20, 30 years ago, this was a sprinters race. I remember one year when I think Alessandro Pitaki, the Italian sprinter, won almost every stage. And they made it exciting, didn't they? They, I think they reduced it to four days initially and they introduced a lot of mountains and uh, Andalusia is very mountainous and there's some fantastic climbs there and they used them and it saw some great duels between Chris Froome, Contador and there was a good field this year as well and well we just hope we just hope that that race is on the calendar again next year because they will have taken a big hit Mm -hmm. won't they
2: yeah, and there was real disappointment for Carlos Rodriguez as well because the first stage was due to start from his hometown of Almunieca. So I felt for him and Luis Ángel Mate racing his final and the links. The, links. the links. He'll he be at the Welter forward. at least,
0: though. He will be at the Welter. We look forward to seeing him at the And um, Actually, Rob, I didn't include that in the news roundup, but I think that did occur after we recorded last week that the Welter announced the two wild cards for this year's race. And they are Huescaltel, Huescadí, and Ken Farmer. Kern Farmer. So the other two, the two Spanish Pro Conti teams that were invited last year, Burgos Biace, and the other one is Caja Rural, they miss out this year. So the Vuelta organisers, that's kind of been the way of things, hasn't it, for a few years now? They've sort of rotated.
2: It has, but Burgos have been on a good run, I think. And and again, it probably has something to do with the fact that Burgos has sponsored parts of the Vuelta and they've had sort of gran salida there and things like that. But Burgos has been on a, a five or six year run, so it's probably time for them to sit on the bench for one.
0: Happily, one other stage race did finish in Spain. At the weekend, it was the Women's Setmana Ciclista de la Comunidad Valenciana. Four stages. They were won by Elisa Balsamo, Marlon Reiser, Niamh Fischer-Black, and Balsamo again. And Reiser won the GC by eight seconds over Catarzina Niuadoma. or oh, que casio as she's more commonly known. Um, I, I've, no, I've detected, Rob, I've noticed uh, an increasing trend to give her a full name, a proper name, Katarzyna, not Kasia. Is that correct? Ah. Yeah, I believe so. Katarzyna um, yeah, to complete the roundup as far as results are concerned, we go to the south of France, the VAR département specifically. There we saw the premiere of a new race, the VAR Classic, finishing atop Montfaron. Very welcome return to one of the sacred places of French cycling. Maybe we'll talk about that a bit more later on. The race was won and lost in somewhat tragicomic fashion. Lost by Tobias Johansson, who was the victim of some uh, premature exaltation. And the race was won by local boy Lenny Martinez. That race, that one day race, was followed in the same part of France by the Tour des Alpes Maritimes, where day one belonged to Ethan Vernon of Israel Premier Tech, and day two, and indeed the general classification, to Benoit Cosnefroy of Decathlon AG2R La Mondiale. Uh, Aurélien Paris Peintre was very instrumental in that victory for Cosnefroy, but so too was our own. Larry Warbass, who of course featured on the podcast last week. Um, some flowers for Larry Chaps. He did a sterling job pulling on that last day. Again, we will talk more, I think, about that race a bit later on. Um, two stage races that have started but not yet finished. I will just also mention the UAE Tour, where Tim Malia won stage one, and uh, the Tour of Rwanda, which we discussed in some detail last week, where Sudal Quick Steps development team won the opening stage team time trial and Itamar Einhorn of Israel Premier Tech. A sprinter took stage one. I was slightly confused by that because William Jr. Le Cerf, the climbing sensation, all 52 kilos of him, was second in that stage behind Itamar Einhorn. I'm not, actually, I'm not exactly sure how that played out, um, but it strikes me as bizarre that he would be sprinting. Um, Chaps, um, I joked earlier on that we don't do track racing. Well, we will today because last week we got the sad and very concerning news that six-time Olympic champion Sir Chris Hoy is being treated for cancer. Sir Chris said in a statement that he had wanted to keep the matter private, but that his hand had been forced. He added that the diagnosis happened last year. He's currently receiving treatment, including chemotherapy, but he is feeling fine, continuing to work and looking forward to the paris olympics in july now um we don't usually talk about track racing um as already established chaps but um so chris is someone that i think we've all had some contact with over the years i don't know him well he was a very good friend and well colleague because they worked together of our late great founder leader richard moore richard was um the well he collaborated with Chris on his um autobiography both born in Edinburgh of course and um well they were they are were mutually very very fond of each other and of course we wish Chris and his family all the very best over the coming weeks and months Rob you've worked with Chris as well on some track races
2: yeah, and Chris is actually one of the first people I, I exchanged message with um, once when we lost uh, Richard the other year. And again, massively fond of Richard. Chris is one of those people, by the way, that they always say never meet your heroes. He's a big exception to the rule. He's a gentleman, an absolute lovely bloke, and again, wish him all the very best.
1: Yeah, I'd like to echo that as well. I think coming into the sport, it, it kind of in the middle of Chris's peak, I guess, like sort of between... Uh, Beijing and London Olympics. Um yeah, exactly that Rob never meet your heroes, but Chris is one of those rare people who lives up to the hype almost in every way, I think. From, you know, as an athlete but also as a as a person off the bike, so yeah, wish him all the best. Shoot at the rear du peloton, cycling
3: podcast team car at the back of the pack please. That's Seb PK, the voice of Radio Tour, to remind us to tell you that this episode is sponsored by NordVPN. Now, a VPN is a virtual private network to keep your data safe and secure when you're online, whether you're at home or on the move. And with the Spring Classic coming and then the Grand Tours and then the summer holiday season, maybe you're planning a trip overseas or just to another country if you're lucky enough to go to another country without having to cross the water. Either way, you might be planning to take your laptop or tablet and you'll almost certainly be taking your phone and browsing the internet when you're away. And a VPN, NordVPN specifically, is the way to keep all of your data safe and secure when you're online and on the move. And the other reason to invest in NordVPN is that when you're on holiday, or you're just in another country, uh, you won't lose access to all of your favorite streaming services because you can just use NordVPN to select a server in your home country and you'll enjoy an uninterrupted access to your regular streaming services. So those are two of the key advantages for NordVPN. And if you are a Cycling Podcast listener, which obviously you are because you're listening to me now, go to nordvpn.com slash tcp and you can get a great deal a really big discount with nordvpn an exclusive deal at nordvpn.com slash tcp it's also risk-free with nord's 30-day money-back guarantee there's also a link in the show notes the episode description so you can find that link really easily but it's nordvpn.com slash tcp now back to daniel and the rest of the podcast
0: Well, chaps, we've completed the news roundup, got some of the angst out of our system, out of my system this week. Um, We sort of scratched the meme itch, the Omloop itch, that we'll return to talk about Omloop later in the episode. We're going to lock into review mode, though, in this second part. And we're going to focus particularly on the race that I think you were commentating on last week, Rob, the Volta ao Algarve. In the south of Portugal, of course, the result that everyone expected, uh, Remco Evenepoel winning for the third time. He's won that race. He's become a real specialist in that race. And um, chaps, Remco now has fifty-three wins in his young, young career. Um, I mentioned that because we did get a letter a couple of weeks ago. We talked about Marco Pantani. And, of course, last week, the 14th of February, it was the 20th anniversary of Marco Pantani's death. Now, sometimes we're guilty of assuming that everyone's been following the sport for as long as we have and everyone is very familiar with riders Palmares. That's not always the case. And um, We did get a letter from a listener, Adi Nell, who... said that he would have liked to know more about Pantani's actual achievements. And just thinking about that number of Remco's, 53 wins. Now, Marco Pantani, who is a legend, one of the great legends of the sport, um, with whatever sort of caveats and asterisks you want to apply, but one of the great legends of Italian cycling, 26 wins in his career. So just under half um, Remco's win haul. Um, Pantani, I will just recap for Adi recap some of his most notable achievements eight tour stage wins eight Giro stage wins of course he won the Giro d'Italia in 1998 he won the Tour de France in 1998 as well he was also third in the Tour de France twice and second in the Giro in 1994 so Pantani was very much someone who reserved his best performances for the biggest stages um last week I actually wrote a chapter for a collection of uh, a collection of writing about Pantani um, in Italian, and I talked about the sort of disparity between Pantani's achievements and the size of his legacy and the adoration that he still inspires. And I sort of said, "Well, he maybe did 50 attacks that would televise live and yet look at the size of his legacy." Um, these, the pogachars, the Remcos, there are others as well, they're winning at such, at such a rate that our sort of perspective has been slightly skewed on how one builds a legacy and, um, or, or the speed at which one can build a legacy. Anyway, that was a very long-winded um, intro, Rob, to you telling us about Remco's win in Portugal.
2: And just to finish off that intro, they race a lot less as well now. So the strike rate is absolutely ridiculous, isn't it? When you consider wins, take Rem Kuevnipal as an example to get onto what he did this week. There was a, a one-day race in Portugal last week, just the second edition, I think it was, of the uh, Classic, Champions Classic, Figueira Champions Classic, in a place called Figueira da Foz. Evenepoel took off with 55 kilometres to go on his first race of the season to get himself into his second half century. He raised his bat at the end of last season with 50 wins, 51 the other day, 52 in that time trial, his first win in, in the Rainbow Jersey as, as a time trialist and taking it home with the general classification the other day. Um, He's, he's exceptional, isn't he? You know, I, don't, I don't think there's too much point in us dwelling on that and saying that because we've said that a lot already. But he's continuing to work. I mean, just an example of that, of his sort of continuing will to work. He went on holiday to Los Angeles at the end of last year with, with his wife. Whilst he was there, he could not stay off the bike, even though he had his longest break ever, five weeks completely off the bike. He was in the wind tunnel. Testing with Specialised, testing with Costelli, working on the shoulder pads on his time trial suit. Obviously, he wasn't doing the stitching himself, was he? But you know what I mean. They were working, testing, and he just strives to continue to improve. And he's got these season goals, hasn't he? Liege, top five in the Tour, two medals from the Olympic Games and the World Championships, and he started very, very well. There is one remarkable thing about Remco, though. Do you know what? He's never ridden a stage race in France. And he's going to do it for the first time at Paris-Nice.
0: We, met, we mentioned this in the Vuelta last year, didn't we? That we, th- we thought that the stage going into France, the stage that was ultimately what led to his demise in terms of the GC at the Vuelta, um, that was his first road race, excluding time trials. He's done the Col de Nation a couple yeah. of times. That was his first road race in France
2: ever. So, I mean, it's going to be interesting. If he competes all the schedules, races he's going to do in France this year, he's going to do 39 days. So it's a completely different calendar for him. Paris-Nice, Dauphiné, uh, Tour de France, Olympic Games. Um, Again, a lot can go wrong, but it started perfectly well. And and in the Algarve that you mentioned, he has a 100% record now. He's turned up three times. He's won it three times. I think he's taken four stages between those uh, different three races and those three overalls as well. He likes the Algarve and not for his holidays. Rob, was the biggest
0: positive from Remco's point of view, and maybe the biggest I, w- I wouldn't say surprise, um, but given that we, we very much expected him to win, looking at the course, looking at the fact uh, there was the time trial as there always is, and you know they're, they're not big climbs at this time of year either. And um, was the biggest positive. Mikel Lander's contribution and I know that there was a moment on the last day when Wout van Aert and Ben Healy went down the road and Lander looked as though he was struggling but broadly speaking um, on the two days in the hills Lander did make key contributions
2: massive contributions off the bike as well apparently if uh, we believe everything that was said in and around the race Lander was also playing road captain bringing his experience you know we know that we've been talking about Landis more in the last few years and whether it's been working. More often than not, not working, but he's been sort of going down gallantly and heroically in the act of trying to win big things. But before, he's also played domestique in the earlier part of his career and he's been in grand winning tour teams. He knows what I feel, to do. I think we forget that. Mm. I think we forget that he was mainly a domestique.
0: Exactly, yeah. The, the the first part of his career. First for Fabio Aru in in... Um, At Astana, and then of course for Chris Froome, uh, whether
2: he wanted to be domestic for Ada was another thing if we go back there, but he did it very well. But yeah, the the days at Sky, and he knows what to do. And and the talk is on that final stage. And if anybody wasn't watching, I think there were 39 kilometres remaining. We're on one of the categorised climbs, I think third to last climb. And Watt Van Hart decided to take off. Ben Healy followed him. Wout van was at 1 minute 18 in the general classification. Ben Healy at 1 minute 20. A lot of terrain still to go to pick up that time. 10 bonus seconds on the finish. So they needed a little bit more than a minute to steal the general classification on the final day. And there was a massive group of 20 strong riders up the road to bridge to. This was a serious move, but there was no panic. Lander got the troops organised. And it wasn't just Lander. Catania was up in the break and doing a great job. He dropped back. He's getting stronger by the year, by the way sort of a Benjamin Button character, I think. Um, and then, you know, even people like Mr. Dependable, Peter City was just tapping away at the front and they just did it so, so well. And Lander was pulling on the flat towards the end. Everybody hands to the pump. And in the end, it all got brought back together. Fanart, brilliant for trying. Healy as well, didn't come off and you know, a second place in the final sprint. He'll have been disappointed he didn't win. He said he was stuck in the big ring, but he won the overall. And I think that's a much better sign than what we've seen in the last few years because that has been the problem, hasn't it? We know that Remco Kuevnopouls a superstar. We know he's gifted, but it's always been, what about the team? Certainly this winter with, you know, all that happened with the fusion, not fusion, takeover, not take, or all of that sort of stuff. The question was, oh, can they cobble a team together? Yep. The Tour de France is a different thing, isn't it? A Completely different beast. But the early signs are pretty good. I was quite surprised to hear when he um, he, he went and wrecked the TT
1: course, didn't he, Remco? Quite a few times. He did it two or three, two or three laps of that course, which seems unusual for such an early season race. But you get the feeling that there's a, that, what Quickstep are trying to do, as much as win races like the Tour of Algarve. But it, it's do a dry run for what it's going to take to go and. Attempt a grand tour and just kind of go through the process. I mean, I don't know whether, were there any other riders doing that sort of
2: preparation? Stefan Kung did, but that that it, that that's a sort of special moment for him in the early season. I think every year he goes to the Algarve and he has a real go at that time trial. And in front of the time trial as well, laying down a marker seemed to be important for me because if you looked at the cast list, that was probably the best time trial cast list outside the Olympic Games and World Championships this year. Given the fact that people like Van Aert aren't going to the Tour de France,
1: it was technical as well, wasn't it? It was like it was it was not an easy TT as well. Yeah. very. I, I wonder about Remco with you know thinking about his perception and you, you bring in the Pantani comparison, Daniel. But I almost feel there's been so much hype about Remco ever since he was a teenager that it, you know par for him is winning and succeeding, and and anything other than that is almost seen as a as a letdown, as a failure. And and I think until he's got the monkey off his back in the form of a, a, a performance, or, or maybe even he has to win the tour in order to kind of achieve. The benchmark that's been set for him ever since he sort of came onto the scene as a cyclist and I think that's the the prism through which we sort of see Remco and certainly they see him in Belgium I get the feeling the Belgian press uh, I like, pick up on what he's done
0: you still get hints of how that pressure is brought to bear on him for example on the final stage um, he was out sprinted for the second time by Danny Martinez and he made this comment about well how he couldn't get his chain in the small chain ring and he sort of suggested that he would have won and i've seen a lot of people sort of jump on this maybe take it out of context a little bit suggest that he was being um um, well that he wasn't being very magnanimous and that really what he should have been saying was great ride by danny martinez Um, round of applause um but there is sometimes the sense that these moments of i'm not going to call it mm, petulance but these moments of sort of angst they, their root is to be found in the pressure that he's under particularly from the the Belgian media. Rob you mentioned the time trial, there was a fair bit of experimentation that went on there, I think Wout van Aert was experimenting with a new position I saw some pictures some annotated pictures of riders' chest fairing um, basically stuff that stuck up their skin suit to make them more aerodynamic. I don't know what they, they've been sticking up their skin suits. There was actually that a was warning about old... that
2: in the communi- race communique, because the UCI are getting hotter on it, and there was a warning about... Uh, the thing is, it didn't specify any limits, but there was a, a big red marker the night before saying, well, you know that this isn't particularly allowed. So I think that they were probably trying to get it into riders' heads at that at certain points this year, they will be checking. Is it allowed? Only to a certain extent. You're not exactly allowed to you know, put a full prosthesis down there and... Uh, make it much more air and things like that.
0: So we're not talking copies of La Gazzetta dello Sport, which, <laughs> no, of course, we're not. riders no, often used to stick down their front at the top of um, climbs. I wonder if our younger listeners even know or realise that. That was a very, very common thing up until a few years Back ago. Back in my are you day... Allowed to- yeah, maybe you're allowed to stick a single uh, copy of La Gazzetta del Sport, but not sort of the Saturday supplement. That would be too much um, faring. There were some interesting time trial performances, weren't there, Rob? A lot of people um, were s- struck by, for example, um, Isaac del Toro, who yeah. we talked about a few weeks ago, the young Mexican rider who, of course, won stage at the Tour Down Under. Him beating, beating in inverted commas, uh, Filippo Ganna and Wout van Aert.
2: Well, Ganna wasn't impressed with his own ride, so I think that's fair to state that, just to give uh, Ganna a little bit of a defence. He said he wasn't impressed with his form, but he had a bit of an illness. He had to stop for a little while during the winter, and I think he's sort of playing catch-up, but his objectives are much further down the line and probably more on on the track this year in the the Olympic Games. Sorry, Sorry, I know I wasn't meant to mention the T word, Um, but uh, yeah, UAE Emirates against the likes of Ghana. And that's the headline, isn't it? And, and that's what we said in the broadcast as well. You know, you're looking for that headline. Wow, first professional time trial and he beats Ghana. My big question mark over him this week, we've already seen what he did down under on the climbs and in Figueiredo the Foz as well, where he was impressive last week on the climbs. But it was our first opportunity to see both Del Toro and Young Morgado, Portuguese very, very gifted young rider in the TTs. Morgado had a, a really good record in the under-23s in the time trials, but Del Toro, he just didn't do too many. It was an uphill one in, in Toro La so you're always thinking, well, it's a different beast, that's a different animal, different competition. But to turn up and finish in the top five, beat Filippo Ganna, I think this guy's the real deal, isn't he? And, and he, was only, he was already at the GC, so he wasn't in the shake-up to compete with Remco Evenepoel, but I think regardless of that that will be big news this week for for UA Emirates won't it
0: I think it will Rob and you mentioned Modgado there the Portuguese rider of course we've seen over the last few years a few very talented young Portuguese riders emerge Um, the main one of course being João Almeida and we, we often forget about Well, what a strong culture there is of cycling in Portugal. There were years, you know, I don't know. I think this was well reported, well documented at the time. But at the Tour de France, there used to be a competition or it was somehow recorded. um, Which riders got the most or which rider got the most fan mail on the Tour de France? I don't know how you sent fan mail. I don't know whether you addressed a sort of an envelope to Christian Prudhomme saying please pass to this rider or the other rider however Rui Costa used to win this by an absolute landslide every year um, I think this this was the meme of the sort of noughties or, or the, um, the the last 10 years in the Tour de France that you would send fan mail to Rui Costa and um, well this got me thinking chaps just thinking about Morgado and thinking about him making his debut in the Volta. I think he's making his debut in the Volta algarve certainly is a professional UAE. um uh, algarve volta algarve one of the two one of two big stage races really in portugal the other one being the volta portugal and um, this year it was the 40th anniversary of something tragic happening at the volta algarve and um, that was the most famous most successful portuguese rider of all time joaquin agostinho um unfortunately, tragically dying at the 84 um, Voltao Algarve. He was riding his swan song season with the Sporting Club, Uh, The Portugal and Sporting Lisbon, most people um, know them as in football. Um, He took the yellow jersey on stage four, but uh, 350 metres from the finish line of stage five, he hit a stray dog. Now the the footage of this is online. You can find it. I'll post it actually on social media on X um, once this episode goes up and you can watch it um he he asked his teammate to to help him up he makes it to um the finish line he then made it back to the team hotel but started vomiting at the team hotel whereupon the team took him to the lule hospital the closest hospital and to find the x-ray machine wasn't working there he was then taken to faro hospital where they discovered there was no neurology department and there was no helicopter available so he had to be driven to lisbon Um, which is about seven or eight hours away, I think. And he fell into a coma on his way and he died 10 days later and well again the footage is online if you see pictures from his funeral it was a state funeral it was a 70 kilometer procession from Lisbon to Silveira his birthplace um, about 70 kilometers away on the coast and you can't even see the road surface there are so many people on the road um, in the cortege and Agostinho well he was a fascinating character chaps he was sort of a Peter Sagan meets Thibaut Pino meets Lenny from Mice and Men just this supernaturally strong sort of um, brutish rider um, he looked at times on the bike and he'd been discovered he fought for three years with the Portuguese army in Angola and Mozambique during the Portuguese colonial war and um, his captain during the war in Mozambique discovered him he he was a bicycle messenger and he used to carry these messages on a very heavy bike and it, it was taking him two hours to ride 50 kilometers while it was taking his fellow officers five. Uh, he then went to ride a criterium in Brazil once he'd sort of been discovered. And there, one a legendary French um, direct sportif called Jean de Cribaldi discovered him again and offered him the chance to sort of pursue a professional career in europe and um again this sort of brutish strength um when he started racing in europe immediately started winning eddie merckx once said that he was the only rider that really worried him um he was a rider who hadn't obviously he hadn't sort of gone through the ranks and absorbed a lot of the sort of dogmas about how to race how he would do unexpected things um again prodigiously powerful he won four stages of the Tour de France he was third overall twice he finished in the top 10 of the Tour de France eight times perhaps most notably though chaps and this is not a particularly well-known story but he was second in the Vuelta in 1974 um, and he finished just 11 seconds behind José Manuel Fuente that Vuelta a España I think started on the 23rd of april 1974 the estado novo dictatorship um a 40-year dictatorship in portugal had well it would finish two days into that vuelta and the car what they call the carnation Revolution, revolution revolution was was taking place in portugal so midway through or at the start of that vuelta Portugal became a democracy again for the first time in 40 years and Agostinho, well, he was riding fantastically well and um, he went into the last stage, a time trial, um, starting in San Sebastián and finishing in San Sebastián, 35 kilometres with a genuine chance of winning the Vuelta a España. When um, José Manuel Fuente crossed the line, it looked as though Agostinho had taken the race lead and taken the Vuelta. And in fact, commentators at the time said Agostinho has won the Vuelta. However, shortly thereafter, the result was corrected, adjusted, um, they said they'd got the timings wrong by about 15 seconds or so and that Fuentes was, in fact, the winner of that vote. Now, there are all sorts of conspiracy theories about this because you know, it, the, the dictatorship in Spain was still in place and it would be in place for another year and it was said that, um, that the Spanish didn't want a Portuguese rider winning because they didn't like the idea of, um, uh, of someone who had, had come from a country where this revolution had taken place to win um, another conspiracy theory has it that it wasn't in the last stage where Agostinho was cheated it was, he was robbed there were sort of seconds added to his time throughout the race second here a, sec- a second there but um I know there, there are numerous journalists in Portugal who have tried to go back and locate the actual footage, do their own timings of that time trial in San Sebastian, in San Sebastian, to establish the truth, and have been sort of unsuccessful, inconclusive in that. But it strikes me that this this should be the subject of a, of a detailed investigation. Um, as I said, Joaquim, uh, Agostinho, forty years since his death in the Volta. Uh, Algarve. Um, in the year two thousand, chaps, he was he was voted the fourth most important Portuguese sports person of the twentieth century, behind Eusebio, um, Carlos Lopez, and Rosa Mota, the marathon runner.
2: Wow, that's incredible! And just to link to you were talking about Pantani right at the start. Every year in the Algarve, we see these sort of placards and signs everywhere. Agostinho, Agostinho, Agostinho. And they were there on the final stage again on Sunday, which takes place not too far from from Lule, the the scene of that, that tragic arrival at the hospital.
0: A real character, certainly in the 70s, Chaps. And this got us thinking, didn't it? Well, first of all, there's a link here with Theo Gegenhart and his comeback to racing. Um, at the Voltao Algarve.
2: Um, Rob, just quickly tell us how he got on. Very, very well, in fact. He was climbing with the best on the first mountain stage and he was up there with the very best on the final mountain stage. And, of course, he's had to work harder than probably most of us will ever realise, away from the gays, the fans, the experts. We've seen the odd Insta post, haven't we? But he looked like he'd never been off the bike when he was climbing. The only issue was probably the time trial. And to be honest, he may well have gone to the race knowing that his time trial wasn't up to scratch because... Because I imagine, again, no sports scientist or biomechanics expert here, but I imagine that's something that gets to work and wants you back in the bunch. And, you know, that requires separate work, doesn't it? I said that,
0: well, there's a link with Agostinho. There's a link with great characters of the sport, um, Richard, because, well, Teo was, well, he was posting on Instagram quite prolifically throughout the week in Portugal and prolifically and interestingly very thoughtfully and there was one post in particular that caught a lot of people's eye and it caught your eye as well Richard didn't it just about personality and riders really sort of communicating and and conveying their personality to the watching public. I think it caught my eye because this point in the season
1: is a strange mix of all this stuff happening that's kind of important but kind of doesn't matter until on loop day basically or at the start of the the season proper there's this sort of undercurrent this background of the one cycling the saudi back reform and or game changer for cycling and what that might look like and it's sort of been listening to what's happening in the wider world about like uh, streaming platforms like netflix getting much more interested in sport and live sport um and the success of drive to survive and what impact that's had on formula one and so on and so what teo was saying was that the sport in his opinion was missing the sort of characters that it used to have and it kind of got me thinking that that in a way was it, i i'd maybe failed to find perhaps in these early season races is a sort of the sort of characters that we might be looking for almost almost like a, a sort of uh soap opera would be the wrong word but you know that that's ultimately what people are looking for is sort of storytelling isn't it and, and a narrative and and characters that are quite they have those emotions and those storylines they they wear them so obviously and people can identify with them quite easily through the medium that they engage with and, and i'm not sure cycling is doing a terrific job at that at the moment i sort of found myself slightly agreeing with teo whether that's because you know cyclists are now hid behind helmets and glasses i mean that's not a new thing but that that's been remarked upon before hasn't it sort of over the last compare it to like the Merckx era or agostino era for example you know you could see who it was and people were very distinctive and i don't know what your your take is on this rob but i find it increasingly hard to spot the difference between riders and certainly from helicopter shots um that's that's just you know, kind of a a fact of what cycling is to watch now. What made me think about it was watching the Tour de Souterrain team. The first stage of that, there was a rider out in the breakaway, and he clung on till about I don't know. Well, he almost got caught with sort of five k to go, and then he went out again. And the collective might of you know the the, the strong teams in that race. like, uh, Well, Larry Larry Warbass.
0: I mean, Larry's um, Larry's unmistakable.
1: <laughs> they couldn't be bringing back, but. He had this, he had, well, I described it to you earlier as a like 1990s Pantene advert hair, perfectly set.
0: I've got his picture in front of me. He looks magnificent. It's beautiful, brunette mane, sort of chestnut head, chestnut mane. And you, and you see him and you think, okay, well,
1: he's doing this thing on, on the bike that, okay, is eye-catching, but it's not unique. It's not standout. But what makes him stand out is he's got this instantly distinctive hairstyle that's all it is but I immediately found myself sort of identifying with him and wanting him to do well and I looked him up on Instagram and then you find out a bit more about him and a bit more about his character and he's got a dog and he has this what looks like an amazing life in south of France you know he's a local boy his hero is René Vieto um who's you know sort of a character we don't have to delve into the whole history but you know someone whose these myths and legends are written and retold about Vieto and his toes in formaldehyde in a bar in Marseille. Is that right? Or something like that. You know, and French French TV made a, made a documentary about René Vieto in, uh, a few years ago and they called him the, the king of melancholy or something. I think it was the title. The Wa melancholique. And, you know, that's I don't know whether we're going to be making documentaries about the current crop of cyclists calling them... King of Melancholy. I don't. I. I don't know, and I'm not sure how you change it. It's not that you can just ask riders to be more characterful or show more character, but there's got to be some way. If we are going to change how the sport is run or how it operates, just bring a bit more of that back. I think would probably be a good place to start.
0: Yeah, the the, the point on well, the sort of ironically, the point was made by Taylor on social media as well. But I, I'm not sure. I think we all know that social media is really powerful. And the riders and sports people and famous people can leverage their image. I don't mm, always think we've all figured out or they've all figured out how exactly to do that. And, and Teo's post last week were a good example of, of a way in which he's sort of offering a keyhole view into his sort of psyche, into his thoughts, into his personality. And I've had a conversation with Teo about the contrast as well between... Um, some more fringe left field worlds like for example a sort of discipline sport that i'm very interested in mountain running trail running and these kind of riders who are oh sorry these these protagonists who are real one-man bands and don't have teams they don't have any kind of apparatus around them um, besides perhaps a sponsor that gives them some trainers and asks them to you know maybe do a post every now and again. Tay and I have talked about, yeah, he's got some good friends in that world. There's a, a Swiss trail runner called uh, Remy Bonnet. has talked about how much more relatable that world is maybe mm, also because often these trail runners and so on, they're competing in events that Joe Public can enter. Um, they're competing in sort of glorified kind of grand fondos of that world. Um, But also, you know, there are other factors. Richard, as you said, they're they're not wearing helmets. um, And and it all just does seem a little bit more off the cuff and impromptu. Um, But it's a really, it's an interesting topic. Rob, I'm sure you've got some thoughts.
2: Yeah, and I don't really want to bring everybody crashing down to reality. But unfortunately, I am going to do it. We're in a bad mood anyway. I am going to do it. It's it's just... I mean, and again, I'm part of the, I'm part of the, the camp here that, that does want what Theo is asking for, but realistically, how easy is it to provide it? I'm not sure because it's a professional sport and an ever-increasingly professional sport. You know, we can all go back and talk to parents and grandparents and, you know, back in the day, footballer used to go down the pub and have a pint after the match. The same thing's happened in football. You know, the, the biggest sport of them all, it's become professional. They've become a part. They're told to say certain things, not to say certain things. When you're working for a sponsor and a team that is professional, of course, they're going to be very, very, not controlling, but they're going to have an interest in what you say on social media because you have to be on brand. Um, I guess it's just an unfortunate product of, of the sport becoming more professional
0: look at the point we made a few minutes ago or we didn't quite go there but we could have gone there about Remco and his comments about Danny Martinez now I think this is a this is one thing that we can be pretty sure about and we've all seen and we can track and trace how in the last 10 years in social media with social media um, riders, sports people, famous people have become more and more cautious and circumspect because they've all had their hands burned and they're you know they're wise they have been wise to do so and and they they have learned from painful experience we have all probably as well learned from painful experiences um and but it is kind of even that has been at the cost of aspects of well their personality that we'd no longer get to see i mean even if you go back 10 years and this has become very very rare there were certain riders out there who over a short period of time developed a bit of a reputation as firebrands as sort of volatile characters because they tweeted this or tweeted that and that's kind of it's kind of disappeared so that's another sort of forum in which another um, platform sort of literally and figuratively um on which we can see aspects of their of their character that's kind of been taken away um so what we get now is just a very sterilized version it's sterilized on the images that you know eurosport broadcasts rob and all the other broadcasters show us that it's sort of a 2d picture of racing with you know beautiful landscape and what uh, and and so on and so forth and the interviews that i do after the finish and so on and so forth and it's also in the bits that happen away from the race it's also a bit sterile because again you know no one wants that that kind of angst and negativity in their life um, that comes with exposing yourself i think it's kind of the media's fault in a way for that because it's it's
1: increasingly rare agreed and so you know it, you, you sort of give the press i use that term quite loosely i mean not all press are the same um but you give them an inch and they'll they'll take a yard and so quite often when a rider does show any glimpse of character there then you know the media will interpret that in a way and cling on to that and 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 that becomes a characterization and almost a caricature of a rider and actually the the truth is a lot more nuanced and and also subject to change and and I think that's been in the past you know you speak to some riders off the record and about about that or maybe about sometimes their backstory or maybe an incident that they've that's happened or or just something they've said and, and that becomes a bit of a stick to beat them with that they sort of worry about um, exposing too much of themselves because it will become their label and I think that's that's definitely happened but but it, it's sort of self-fulfilling because the less of it there is the more the media is going to latch onto anything any crumb that's there
0: You're absolutely right. And this is where the kind of clickbait media attention economy is so damaging. And it winds me up, actually, when, you know, and sometimes our colleagues or sometimes we're guilty of um, willingly ignoring the context. They know, and for example, last week, um, this was a sort of an innocuous example, but I mentioned, and we sort of joked about it, the comments from Eusebi Onthue about substitutes in grand tours, And I sort of explained what I thought probably the context was. I thought he was just sort of sitting down with um, some friendly journalists and kind of spinning his wheels and kind of just, you know, off the top of his head, suggesting things. And of course, this then feeds, fuels, clickbait headlines, mockery and probably, possibly, I think AUSAB is old enough and experienced enough to not really care too much but in the case of younger individuals, riders, that then makes them think twice about even engaging with the media in future
2: because what's what have you got to gain from it and we're seeing that in a lot of post-race interviews as well we get some pretty pretty drab interviews and again this is not an overt direct criticism always of the riders because it's never an easy time to to talk no it's just it's never an easy time to talk is it when you know when you've been doing silly numbers of watts for three four five hours and then you have a microphone but again it Unfortunately, it's part of their job. <laughs> if you want to be, that's an other, another thing that riders also have to understand, I guess. Um, but you know, there, there has to be a chat, maybe where the those microphones and those riders can meet each other halfway, and maybe a, a bit of a bit of the window can be opened ever so slightly. But it's a difficult thing to ask for bo- for both broadcasters who want more, and of course, you know, bosses who are going to want people to focus on those nasty clickbait things. And the riders who, for obvious reasons, don't want to give too much away. It is a very difficult situation to move on into any different, pop- more positive territory, isn't it? But, but fair play to, for Taylor for putting out his own thoughts and, and at least starting this conversation.
3: well chaps
0: we've spoken about what has gone before what happened last week now time to tell the world that there are only four days until Omloop, and it will soon be happy Omloop day how are you how are you going to celebrate daniel and probably by turn disconnecting the internet um on that for a few hours that morning um yeah less less i get riled um it is opening weekend. It is exciting. It is an exciting weekend. Um, it's a context switch, isn't it? It's a complete sort of, was like being teleported back in time or into the future. Um, different, completely different landscapes from everything we've seen so far in the season different cast of characters to an extent to an extent because this is another thing that's curious about this weekend we've seen a few riders who are going to be at the forefront of affairs at the weekend but in quite different contexts you know i think of jan Tratnik, Mm. for example who's been one of the strongest riders of this early season and jan Tratnik, anyway is a difficult rider to pigeonhole because sometimes you know you'll see him pulling for 100 kilometers up climbs but then you get to this time of the year and you expect him to be contending in races like Omloop. But there are a few riders like that. Stefan Kung always goes well in the Algarve and he becomes a sort of uh, a climber for a couple of days um, on those fairly innocuous climbs in the Algarve. Um, But then at the weekend we will see him in Omloop, and then we will not see some riders who we would maybe expect to see, like Sir Mathieu van der Poel and Mads Pedersen and so on. Um, Before we talk about Omloop or this year's Omloop, we should remind the listeners of what happened last year. Last year, it was a victory for the, well, the rider that I refer to as the Diamond Thief. Generally, for his manner of winning these big classics, um, sort of goes away by stealth. Um, I think I've talked on the podcast before about how your Italian colleague, Rob, uh, italian eurosport Riccardo magrini calls this the faggianata he goes away like a pheasant sort of scurrying off on the side of the road um, and then kind of takes off without anyone really noticing and that's what he's an expert in and um, last year he got away in a couple of phases, really, with about 38 kilometres to go. He was in a four-man group. Then he was left with Matisse Lebel from Akea, just the two of them who he then dropped on the Mur van Heraldsbergen, which, of course, now features on the Omloop route. And he then won the race pretty comfortably. And it was the start of a dominant classics period, to a certain extent, for what was then Jumbo-Visma although they didn't bring home the big prizes. Um, chaps, they have got an extraordinarily strong team at the weekend. Dylan van Baal, defending champion. Wout van Aert, Christophe Laporte. Teixe Benoit, who won Koerner, Brussels Koerner, last year. Koerner, of course, comes the day after Omloop. Tratnik, who we've mentioned. Matteo Jorgensen, who's making his debut for... Yeah. Um visma lisa bike and again he's one of those riders who sort of challenges our preconceptions in the sense that he's a he's a good climber he can win hilly stage races but he's also got a lot of potential in the classics and then i suppose the one domestique but what a domestique he is that they will have is eduardo Affini. i'll just mention a few other names on the start list tom pitcock frinios tim wellens arnold de Lee who um, was second last year Oyer Lascano from Movistar who's a bit of a hipster outsider's tip uh, Binyam Gamay uh, Kasper Asgerin uh, Stefan Kung uh, Jonathan Milan Jasper Steuven Ben Turner for Ineos Alberto Betiol um, Julian Alaphilippe Jasper Philipson Matej Mohoric Ivan Cortina Matteo Trentin Alexander Christoph Florian Senechal Gianni Moscon And Fred Wright, who we're going to hear from in a short while. Um, But Rob, you'll be on duty. It is a mouthwatering prospect.
2: It is. I'll be working for the host broadcaster this weekend. So uh, I think if you're listening in the United States, you might hear me. And you'll be stuck with me all day. I'm on my own this weekend. So apologies in advance to all you, United States listeners. Um, Yeah, it's a changing world, isn't it? A changing sport. But this is that comforting, familiar feeling. The arrival of the Flemish Spring. And of course, openings weekend, as they call it over there. Um, all those names that become familiar again this time: the Harjuk, the Leberg. There's no more Langermunter, which I'm missing this race. I used, to, I did used to like when it was a real omloop and it went back to Ghent. But you know, the organisers, uh, Flanders Classics. You're not going to hear me criticising what they've done with these races because they've kept them alive. They are thriving. They're interesting parkour, and of course with not having the Mood in the Ronde of Vlanda anymore, we keep that Mood and Boss Bed combination alive in a different guise here. So it'll be great racing. You've reeled off the names. And, you know, by the time we're going up the Mood and all the crowds are there, you know, the chapel comes out of his, uh, so the priest comes out of the little chapel to have the best seat in the house. The bells will be ringing. and, And, you know, even Lionel will be saying, we've started now.
0: Well the race was first founded in well, it was founded in 1945 and this extraordinary statistical quirk persists survives that no rider has ever won Omloop and also the the Ronde van Vlana and the Tour of Flanders, which, um, you know, I'm not sure there are many... In the same um, year, we should say, in the same year. In the same year, sorry, in the same year, sorry. Um, I'm not sure. A lot of these curses, purported, reported curses in cycling have been sort of debunked now. Um, The curse of the rainbow jersey doesn't really stand up. There are smaller ones, less well-known ones, like the curse of the Jeep La Marseillaise in France. Whoever wins uh, La Marseillaise is going to have a rotten season. That's kind of quite a newfangled one as well which um, was sort of talked up for a few years but this one i would put it to you that it might actually be a curse um because there's something in the history of the races as well the omelette was actually set up it was founded as a to sort of rival the, the ronde van vlanderen by a rival newspaper um ironically it's now called het newsblad het newsblad used to run the ronde van vlanderen and omelette was set up by het volk which is another newspaper um in Flanders. Um chaps, I think I've described it before as well, I've drawn the parallel between this and the Masters, the US Masters par three tournament, um, which takes place the day before the US Masters in golf, never been won by the same player. And Omloop has never yielded the vic- the victor of that year's tour Flanders. Why? Why? Timing? You've got to be good from the yes.
2: end of February to the end of March. However, you know, and there's crashes, there's injuries, there's illness. It's that time of year. But again, if, if something's there to be broken in, in these days of less racing, more of targeted focus racing, maybe this is something that, that can be achieved. The bullseye can be hit finally by somebody like a Wild van Aert, maybe in the coming years with a, a different build-up what
1: everybody said at the time and I think what's sort of happened in the last 10 years since they changed the tour of Flanders is that that's become more of a, a sort of strongman contest or an arm wrestle so it's it's less tactically nuanced than it used to be there's always an out and out favorite or, or a handful of favorites that are going to be the riders that that are going to win it whereas Het newsbad's got that sort of it's a bit shorter they've got the old Flanders finish it pretty much identical isn't it uh, basically yeah. that last sort of 16 15k or so mm. because it's the first like first big classic of the season everybody's a bit like well it doesn't it matters but it's not the be all and end all so there's a, there's less fear of losing I think in the teams I mean obviously there's that there's the usual post-mortem isn't there like the, the sort of annual how did Quickstep do or how did such and such rider do and the Belgian press all sort of get stuck in there but it tends to be raced with a bit more freedom and a bit more willingness to lose, I think. A bit more, perhaps, like audacity in the riders. So I think to go back to your curse, Daniel, it is it is surely, t- to echo what Rob said, it's, it's timing, isn't it? I think if you're going to peak in April, or well, it's first weekend in April, it, can you be going well now at the end of February? Have you got time to hold that form or like
0: drop off and come back again? Or uh... I think it's genuine magic. I think it's a genuine hex that will never be broken. That's what I would like to think. We'll, st- we'll still be here podcasting in hundreds <laughs> years, talking about how this has never been broken I and mean, unbreachable. unbreachable. Um, chaps, um, yeah, I th- no, I think you're. I think you're right. I think you're right. Um, how many weeks is it until Flanders? It's what, is it about six? No, not as many as that. Five or six. Um, it's a long time, but in terms of, look there are there are riders who will be very strong this weekend who will be strong at flanders um, and we've seen that in the past there are examples of riders who have gone very close in one or the other so it can be done it can be done but it won't be done any tips chaps
2: in terms of who's going to win
0: yeah in terms of who's going to think i mean i think the race will be uh, you know jumbo will will visma um, Lisa bike will just they will try to suffocate every move. They will try to obviously put a man with every move until we get to the sort of state, the phase of the race where last year um, Van Bommel made him, made his decisive move. You know, you could always get a situation when uh, where the, the anointed visma lisa bike rider for that particular move is not as fast a sprinter as for example an arnold and and finds themselves uh, or finds himself being beaten in a sprint that could happen Um, but i do think there will certainly be a Yumbo visma of visma lisa bike rider in the finale um, in the well in the
2: the break in the group that wins the race um, will it be a group? we'll, we'll see, um, you know, what will the final selection look like? Uh, I tell you what, Lotto Destiny will be hoping that Arnold de Lee's in it again. He was second last year. Do you know what? For a big Belgian team, talking about runs and hexes and curses, they have not won the Omelette newsplad since 2002, 22 years for Lotto Destiny without winning that race I would say is an absolutely enormous amount of time Peter von Peteken was the last winner well he's not he's not going to win it is he he's not going to win it this time no they've they've had a blow this year with Vermeers being out for, for the spring after that very nasty crash but all eyes will be on Arnaud Delis as, as he lines up for them.
0: This time last year, of course, the, well, the hype around Arnaud Dely was reaching fever pitch because he'd won pretty much everything that he'd wanted to win. For the previous six months, and I remember this time last year I was sort of tipping in from milan That the hype the, the hype kind of got a cold shower at uh, I was at Paris Nice last year, and he struggled a bit more there, and that was sort of the pattern in the bigger races for the rest of the year I mean at Omloop last year, he did impress a lot of people because he crashed at a key moment, yet despite that was still sort of dropping everyone pretty much everyone on the moor. And then finishing second. So um, he will certainly be, well, he'll be one of the riders to watch at the weekend. Um, chap, should we hear from uh, another rider who has certainly got a chance at the weekend? Um, Bahrain Victorious is Fred Wright. Um, He has ridden Omloop before, um, has had his best results in Belgium in the classics, in Tour Flanders, in the Ronde van Vlaanderen, um, eighth, Last year, seventh year before that, he is the British road race champion, um Fred Wright. And I spoke to him today about Omloop Het Newsblood and, well, just what kind of preparation he's had for opening weekend.
4: Sort of fondest, not maybe not fondest, but got a strong memory of the, the first one I did and just like getting to the finish and being like, wow, that was it was my second race, like proper race as a pro the team 2020 we're talking pre-covid pre everything like that kicking off and it was kind of i'd gone to the saudi tour and helped my teammate sort of win and stuff and it was like oh wow this being a pro this is easy this is all good and then straight to belgium sort of news blood it was windy really windy that day we had like splits groups all over the place before we'd even hit the powder which you know doing the recon again today seems See's so he's mad. It was a basically, it was just an absolute brute of a day on a, on the bike. Just getting to the finish felt like felt like an achievement that that first one, and I was really like, wow, this is this is proper bike racing. This is what's um, what it's all about. And I mean, I I loved it, but it also was I was like, wow, this is horrible at the same time. You know, year on year, you you come here, you, you do recon, you you know. Now I I rode around the, the road today, and it's I can tell you which. Which is the next climb? What's the next corner like? Oh, this happened on this corner. You, you pick up, pick it all up so so quickly. The more the more you do it, and I really kind of I, I know it now. I mean, it's like it's like almost racing on, well, not racing on home roads, but it's racing on roads that you would know really well, as if as if they're like your local training roads. And it's it's such a nice feeling, you know, when you when you ride on them. Like it kind of it's it's mad that you can be you know, not the most beautiful-looking areas, but I kind of ride around the roads today just with a smile on my face, like, oh, we've got the, the moor coming up, oh, we're do going down the Hard Cook or whatever. So
0: With some nostalgia. Nice. You even know the names now. Goodness there are some r- riders get to the point where they know where they are, but they still are a bit sketchy as far as the names are concerned. Um, so is that the first time this year when you've gone where you've really felt you know it inside out?
4: I, I think so, yeah. I guess always at school I was you know, I wasn't that great at writing, you know, writing pieces or or writing things down, but I'd always remembered silly facts and like, (laughs) I didn't find revising that, that, that difficult because I don't know, I'd remember, you know, stupid facts from history or whatever. And I think that, that maybe plays into my hands a little bit when it comes to learning these, these roads, because yeah, now I've got this, a good sort of recollection of, I'll tell you what there are is there's a section in in I think it's in Kerner, where you go over three climbs in a row that all begin with a k and I can't you. Tell- which wow. which the order is of those ones, though. So, you, you, you know, you've w- the Klusberg, the Noctenberg, the Kreuzberg. Uh, usually I if know. you
0: don't know which one it is, it's always the Kreuzberg <laughs> in one of those races. It's always the Kreuzberg. Yeah, yeah. Fred, yeah. you've walked right into this because I was going to ask you to talk us through the climbs in the last fifty kilometers, but I'm going to turn it into a bit of a quiz now. So okay. what, what comes after Mollenberg?
4: <laughs> Mollenberg, then you you uh, a little bit across crossing, maybe on the top, and you, you come down, then you go up a bit of a drag left. Down the hard crook again for the third time. Leyberg, and then Berenju's after that.
0: And then you three more that? three more climbs after that?
4: The next one after Berenju's I don't know.
0: Now Vossenhall.
4: This one's just like suffer. You'll be all right kind of climb. And then it's the Murr and then it's the Bosberg. And then it's the Bosberg, the yeah. Finish.
0: <laughs> well, give us a rider's eye view of those phases of the race. You've already talked about the, the the sort of wind on top of the Molenberg. Talk us in from that point, sort of 40, 50 kilometers to go. Um, what will you be looking to do on Saturday? What will you, you be
4: hoping is happening in the race? Well, really, it, it kind of all sets up like 70k to go like a lot of we'll use up a few of our you know the more like helper riders getting into the right this the right turn that basically everyone knows about and that really sets you up for that sort of second to last phase of the race where you've got the Wolvenberg and most importantly the Molenberg and that's where yeah Molenberg is kind of where the first like big boy attacks can happen the strong guys can play play their cards and yeah basically for me it's be in there. Maybe not. I'm not ne- not still not necessarily making moves at that point. But you, you want to be in the race at that point, and you know you've seen it in years past where breaks have gone at that point, and then you kind of you you do the do the trees, Also, attacks can go there. You have this sort of slight settling down period before you hit the Mur and the the Bossberg, where there might be a bru group up the road, or there's one bigger group, and then in the the final final is. They we're in the boss bug and that's where hopefully you've saved your legs from. You've got something left in the tank to smash it and fight with the best guys.
0: Um, obviously, everyone knows this quirky statistic um, the fact that no one has won Omloop and um, Tour of Flanders in the same year and it's baffling in some respects and maybe not in others because there's a big difference in the distances of the two races and obviously the Omloop comes six weeks or so earlier. Is it surprising to you that the same rider hasn't won both in the same year or is the, does the explanation lie in basically what I've just said, that it is a bit too early to be at your best and also it will probably suit a different kind of rider because it's so much shorter?
4: It's a combination of a lot of things. Th- you'll definitely see the people that make moves, make big, big moves, and can get away around that time of the Molenberg Berendries. Those are the you, you'll see the the guys that do that are definitely going to be the guys fighting for the the win potentially in in Flanders. But then how the race then develops after that is is yeah, like you said, it's not not quite long enough to put that real fatigue in the legs, and you often get slightly more slightly different combinations of of riders, I guess, that have maybe come into form a little bit earlier or even the best guys, they sort of it's almost like they they're testing their legs, but they're not necessarily showing their kind of best best form just yet. So it's it's an interesting one. It really I really it's one of my favourite ones actually, the way the way the race pans out. It's always it's always really interesting. To be honest, the Moor and the Bossberg are such a it's like the, that's like the wombo combo the wombo like... combo what does <laughs> i feel like, that mean? I feel like I don't know it's just like it's just iconic in it it's Me just the like the og combo
0: yeah it's interesting it, you yeah, say it, that it, it's... um it's interesting you say that because you're young enough to have grown up watching the current circuit predominantly yeah. i would say is that right is that right? right yeah but on. i've
4: still got yeah. i've still got in my head like that the, the Cancellara and boone and then kancelara just absolutely leaving in leaving Boone in the dust on the moor like I've, that, like that's i've got that kind of in my mind when I, when I think about it
0: the wombo combo wow um <laughs> fred um you you said that you enjoy omloop however results suggest that the tour of flanders itself suits you better and the extra fatigue and the extra length suits you better
4: i, I would say so i think the past couple of years of of doing this race, I've been like, oh yeah, I feel feel good, and then, you know, made a made a couple of er- errors here and there, or or like two years ago, I was working, working for Sony to try and, um, I think I was Van Vanart had attacked, and I was just desperately trying to bring him back. I mean, I I wasn't it, 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 the gap wasn't closing; it was going out, but we still, uh, I think Sony managed to get second that day, so that was still that was quite a good one. But yeah, results wise, I'm hoping for a bit more on Saturday, but. Again, if it if it doesn't come, it's kind of a it's a no panic sort of thing. It's yeah, see what the see what the legs are saying. You know how the the, the past few weeks have been, and how I was feeling today as well. I think it should be good. I'm excited for Saturday. That's for sure.
0: It's not your season debut. You rode you rode in Saudi Arabia as well at the Lula yeah. Tour. but um, Fred, we haven't spoken to you all, all winter. Just give us a a, a quick summary of well, how you think the winter went and where you spent it and whether you did anything different this winter compared to other years?
4: I guess learning a bit from from past mistakes and putting in different sort of phases of training, like almost rearranging them. So I'm sort of, okay, it meant I wasn't necessarily flying, flying in Saudi, but I think it's, it's what we've done is put me in good stead for sort of built like almost hitting the classics, flying rather than, Flying and then holding on to it. If that makes sense, I think we've kind of we've done a bit, done quite a bit of work in the gym as well. And uh, yeah, I've, like I said, I've just been back from a training camp in Gran Canaria, so I've really kind of invested in trying to shape shape myself as best as possible. So at I, you know, I, I've known what I've known what works in the years before, but I think I've I feel like you know I feel like I've done a good job this year of really. Ticking tick all the boxes, no so, bad luck and things like that, and just yeah,
0: all set. In Gran Canaria, you've been at altitude, I presume.
4: We didn't get, we didn't go for the altitude option okay. yet. That was that was still something we thought about, but then again, it's like we was like you were saying, it's, it's still quite you know six weeks or mm. whatever till Flanders Roubaix time. You don't necessarily have those. You know, you get the the train. You'll still have the training effect from that camp then, but not necessarily the, the actual benefits of the altitude itself. So I think it, we kind of went for the more, let's do a solid quality training camp where there isn't the, the altitude factor to add the fatigue in the legs, where I can really smash it and then yeah, put myself in a good stead for, for the season. I and mean, then if that doesn't work, then next year I will be at altitude. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you collect so much data from seasons of, of training. It's already... You you know we've got graphs comparing of different different things whether it's weight or your power numbers and all that sort of stuff. So it's it's great. I can really kind of really try to perfect things up until this point. Or so oh, just overthink. It's good. I, I feel like I'm not. You know, if if things don't go well, then I'll feel like I'm banging my head against the wall a little bit. But I think I've got good. I've got faith. <laughs> I've got faith in what, in what we've built.
0: <laughs> and and well. If the engine, the engine is built, Fred, then what happens after Omloop um, and well, how do you try to sort of hold on to the condition or just sort of hone the condition over the next few weeks? What's the programme after this weekend?
4: Like I, I said, I kind of deliberately sort of moved the phases around a little bit. So it means that Paranese hope is, because obviously ponies is next and it's such a hard, big, big lot of load. That That is the kind of final, final bit of getting the form rather than just it being an absolute load of fatigue i'm hoping that 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 increases my level rather than decreases it so uh yeah Paris next and then then San Remo and the rest of the the one days in belgium very similar to previous years but i've got a feeling it's it's gonna be good i've got a good got, i don't want to speak too soon <laughs> you don't but, yeah. but you got a feeling it's like so, be really i'm really excited really good. I'm really excited.
0: Excellent. Well, we've thing. got our fingers crossed for you as well. Um, Fred, just tell me, I guess you're not at sort of team HQ, team, all of the teams have a sort of base for the classics in Belgium, usually a hotel they go back to year after year. Are you already there for this weekend? Or Yeah, we're, we're already where, where is that? Our
4: team do, do a great job. It's like one of the best things about the classics. And what I've loved the past couple of years is we basically they rent out this massive big villa, just really close to the, the uh, it's quite close to the sort of running from Kerner to the, to Kortrick. So, yeah, close to Kortrick, this big villa, some some staff stay in the villa as well. You know, we've got a chef here, it's everyone's kind of chills out together. It's so much nicer, basically, than being in a hotel and sitting in a hotel room because you can sort of muck around with your teammates a little bit. So, pool parties. Nice. And we're here DJ. already. So it's,
0: sounds fantastic What's that? pool parties yeah, DJ, saunas yeah, fantastic. It's, it's, sounds
4: fantastic it's, no it's um, it's great it's really it really kind of I think this team we're really sort of building something with these these classics races I think it's going to be a good one
0: Interesting from Fred there. Big season for him. Um, Bahrain Victorious will be strong, I think, at the weekend. Mohorich, in particular, in Omloop. Um, Her- Newsblood. Um, Rob Kurner, the following day,
2: usually... Mm, it finishes in a sprint we say not that always. we say that it's been it, yeah it's been a lot always. more tactical in the last few years and the difference for anybody who doesn't know the two races that well um you know a lot of the you sort of build a crescendo with the climbs don't you in the Omloped new splat and then you've got the final few kilometers on the flat it didn't always used to be like that when it finished in Jent, you had the, the final sort of 20ks on the flat uh, now with Kurna, most of the last 50ks are on the flat, really, unless you count the the Tichenberg and and things like that towards the end. A lot of climbing, most of it in the first half, but it still gets very tactical, still gets very technical. The wind, because you're you're doing a lap of Kurna itself as well. And last year, it was Tiespen that won it. And, of course, not known for his sprinting abilities, is he? And and it was a lovely moment because he's a rider who obviously promised a lot. He burst onto the scene with that that Tour of Flanders positioned in the early in his career top five I think it was on his debut or something silly like that and then he revealed that he wrote a school essay a few years before saying that he was going to win the Tour of Flanders in in 10 years so you know he's had that pressure put on himself since he was a teenager but joking aside it was lovely to see him win his first race in Belgium just down the road from where he's from but half an hour from Ghent where he's from Um, so anybody can win this race and it does get technical
0: I often think that's ultimately why I didn't make it as a professional sportsman. That I never—how many professional sportsmen and women do you read about or hear about who told their teacher at some point, "I am going to be a footballer, a cyclist, a cricketer," and I never did that. And that is probably the only thing that's why you that went wrong me from becoming. Yeah, knew Steve Grizovic was going to be Daniel Friber. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, oh well. Omloop at the weekend. Koerner as well in Belgium much further south in Europe Uh, we've talked about Visma, Lisa Bike and how strong they're going to be in Belgium but much further south their other well their other sort of team their other division their stage race division is going to be converging on the region of Galicia in northwest Spain for El Gran Camino the third edition of that four stage race Um, and Jonas Vingegaard is going to be starting his season. And it's a very hilly course. Um, It's a good field as well. David Godew is also going to be there. Uh, Carlos Rodriguez will be there. Egan Bernal, Rigoberto Uran, Nielsen Paulus. Um, Visma, Lisa Bike, as well as Vingegaard. They're going to be fielding Ben Tullet and Kian Utebrooks. Both making their debuts, I think, for Visma, uh, Lisa Bike. Um, O Gran Camino. Interesting and beautiful race it will be a beautiful race um richard doing a little bit of um well you've been looking into the archives of the, the, the very well yes didn't in didn't this race <laughs> and and
1: what has gone before in galicia yeah there was a there was a tour of galicia which um was started in the 30s went on for a bit went on hiatus in the 80s came back for a bit um Miguel Indurain went there once in the 90s um but then it went just to amateur only i think from the year 2000 um and then and then sort of stopped i think due to the covid pandemic but this new race has come back with the big emphasis on showcasing galicia as a, a place to to go and visit like quite a big sort of tourist boardy influence behind it which like go there it's it's fantastic I mean the race the race last year looked superb. Galicia always looks good on TV, but as a as a little kind of a part of Spain you might not normally go to. Um something a little different. It's it's a brilliant little part of the world, isn't it? But but yeah, I mean hilly. Like that's I think for the first time this season there's going to be the sort of climbs that are getting close to Grand Tour type climbs so yeah
0: sort definitely. of five to seven kilometer climbs um but there are climbs well there's significant climbs every day
1: yeah apart from the tt on the first day but even that's lumpy and, and technical so
0: you talk about galicia it is a really beautiful part of spain um chaps when i think about galicia and um, rob you well you spend a lot of time in asturias the neighboring spanish region but when i think of and galicia i always think of eucalyptus trees and the eucalyptus trees which you will see if you watch o gran camino i should say as well o uh, gran camino the, it's named after takes its inspiration from probably the most famous sort of tourist attraction of uh, galicia which is the camino de santiago um the famous saint, ja- saint james's way i was there in santiago the, uh,
1: like last autumn i kind of found out that the the whole idea of of doing a camino you know doing the pilgrimage to to santiago was although it's given this idea of a, a long tradition which it which it does have has, has sort of really taken off as an idea in the last oh, yeah. 30 years or so it's amazing kind of oh, successful yeah. piece of marketing from the tourism yeah. industry and then
0: now there is there is a camino that starts from everywhere you can walk to the end of your road wherever you live in yeah Europe and you will find a version you can go of from the uh, you can go from reading which oh, is sort correct. of? I think.
1: No disrespect to people in Reading. You start
0: this afternoon. It's not far away. Exactly. You can start yeah. This I mean,
1: I lived there for a few <laughs> years, and I think culturally, quite a long way from uh, Santiago, as well as geographically. But
2: Reading's yeah. not twinned with A Coruña, then. Uh, not as far as I know. <laughs> not Chaps, just um, if you in,
0: indulge me for a, a minute or two about the eucalyptus trees, um, you will see them, and they are beautiful, and I feel, slightly feel. I feel slightly guilty about thinking that and feeling that and having this attachment to the eucalyptus trees when we go to uh, Galicia on the Vuelta because they are such a feature um, of the landscape. They account for about. Um, tw- are they a pest, invasive species? Is that what well, they're they are? Ac- yeah, well, they. Yeah, they account for about 25% of the um, forested area in Galicia. And they came, they were brought to Europe and Galicia in the 19th century when a, a Galician monk from the town at the bottom of what will be the decisive climb on the last stage Um, a monk from there brought some seeds from australia in the mid-19th century and they have become very very controversial in the last few years because their sort of opponents argue they're invasive they're not indigenous they deplete the soil they compromise biodiversity and they burn very easily and they've contributed to the terrible forest fires in galicia and um, the the proponents of the eucalyptus say that well that's not the case they're not any more um volatile than for example pines or or oaks um if they're well managed they can contain the forest fires in fact but most of all they're incredibly lucrative um compared to other trees they yield about a thousand euros per hectare compared to for example 300 euros that yielded by a pine tree they also are sort of mature and ready to start well um, to, to yield wood that can be used industrially after about 10 years where it t- as it takes multiple decades with pines and oaks and so on so this is kind of this battle has raged over the last few years i think there has now been a moratorium that, uh, on um, planting eucalyptus in galicia um, whether we see the landscape change significantly over the coming years will be interesting because rob you know the issues like this they can often seem sort of far away and and irrelevant and not that sort of well visible when you go to a place but when you go to galicia you cannot um mistake or you cannot Avoid the eucalyptus trees and um, and, as I say, unfortunately, in my case, think they 're rather beautiful and um, rather memorable
2: there 's someone sat listening in the next room to where I am in asturias she 's going to be laughing now because the first time I came to see her here. I get off, I got out of the airplane, got to the airport, and I could not believe these trees they I'm like you, they look magnificent. I absolutely loved them, and I did not know what they were. I thought it looked like something that should come from another continent, and the story you tell there about the seeds coming from Australia you know sort of tallies with that, but they do have this sort of for a for someone on continental Europe anyway, a sort of otherworldly look. Indeed. Well, look out out for Jonas Vingar, but mainly look out for the eucalyptus trees. And one more thing, look out for Carlos Canal, rider from Movistar, moved up to World Tour this year. The third stage starts from his hometown, which is right on the Portuguese border. It's a little town that's famous for its carnival. It's in the the province of Orense. Um, And it's famous for its carnival and for a figure who goes around the streets checking that everybody has their carnival attire on and participating properly in the festivities. I mention this because it's carnival time right now. And if you aren't dressed properly for carnival, tradition dictates that you're escorted to a closest bar to pay a fine. And a fine. The UCI commissaire of. Exactly. Instead of 200 Mm. Swiss francs, the fine, which helpfully for the pantaya, which is the name of the person who is the enforcer, is the price of a glass of wine. So I can only imagine that the person enforcing can only do so much enforcing before they're sort of found in the corner without the carnival attire on themselves.
0: I think we will introduce that for mentions of track racing. And cycle across in the non-winter months on the cycling podcast um ciao well it's been a, it's been a, a wide-ranging discussion today eucalyptus trees and um, what else did we get to craig david um all sorts of other things very entertaining indeed so thank you for your company um we'll be back next week i think we've got mitch docker on the pod next week and we're also in the next few days or in the next week we're going to be telling friends of the cycling podcast what they've got in store as far as extra episodes special benefits over the next few months but um, in the meantime enjoy your happy omloop day everyone please please on monday don't send me text saying only 364 days until omloop it's probably not quite that There's also a a leap year this year, so that will complicate things. Anyway, Rob, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. Ciao. And Richard, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks, Daniel. The Cycling
1: Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed, and Lionel Burney.